Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to begin by thanking the sponsor of today's episode, Sandra Bird, author of the Tudor Ladies in Waiting series. A rich alchemy of fact and fiction, these critically acclaimed books chronicle the glittering court lives of three queens and their closest friends and companions. The novels brim with heartwarming and heartbreaking circumstances and heroines who choose lives worth risking all. Book one, To Die For, follows Queen Anne Boleyn through the viewpoint of Margaret Wyatt. Library Journal awarded it a Best Books of the Year pick and said the novel brings history to life in exquisite detail. Book two, The Secret Keeper, uncovers love and betrayal in the life of Queen Catherine Parr. Library Journal calls the book atmospheric, full of twists and a must-read for Tudor fiction fans. Finally, book three, Roses Have Thorns draws close to Queen Elizabeth I through Ellen von Snakenborg, who transformed into Helena, the Marchioness of Northampton. I loved all three books and found this concluding book masterful, impeccably researched, and deliciously detailed storytelling. The series is available at Amazon.com. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love talking to Tudors and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patron family to instantly unlock access to 126 exclusive posts, including 22 audio releases and 30 videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a copy of Tudor Mystery, The Master of the Countess of Warwick, published to accompany the exhibition, Tudor Mystery, A Master Painter Revealed. The lucky winner will also receive a portrait miniature of Thomas Nivett. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would absolutely love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag I love talking Tudors. Now, on to today's episode. My wonderful friend Dr. Owen Emerson and I have teamed up yet again to answer all your burning questions about Anne Boleyn's downfall. Please note this is the first of two installments. Part two will be published very soon. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm so happy that you're here with us today to chat about Anne Boleyn's downfall. And I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Owen Emerson. Hello, Owen. Hello. It's so lovely to be back with you. Oh, well, thank you so much. So what we thought we'd do in this instalment is answer some of your questions. So I'm really excited about this. So last November, Owen and I recorded a podcast episode about my book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. So you can have a little listen to that. In fact, I probably recommend you listen to that before this one, because this is more us answering your questions. So it might not go completely chronological. We've got quite a lot of questions to go through. So I think I think we'll dive in. But before that, do you want to just say a quick hello and just introduce yourself, Owen? Yes, absolutely. Um, so my name is Dr. Owen Emerson. I'm a social and cultural historian. Uh, I've written four books and I've done a few documentaries and I'm very fortunate to work at Amberlynn's childhood home of Hever Castle. Yes, I'm not jealous at all about that fact, Owen. Not <laughs> at all. <laughs> So I put out a post on some of my social media accounts just asking people to to comment with their burning questions, those questions they still have about Anne and her downfall. And so these are the ones that I've collated. I'm sorry that I didn't get to everybody's question. There were quite a lot, but I'm hoping that we cover most themes today anyway, and maybe we can come back to other questions later. So let's get going. The first question Oh, and I'll direct this one to you. Why, after wooing Anne for so long and declaring his undying love for her, did Henry have her executed? Was it because it was just an obsession and not real love? Oh, that's a tricky one to get started on. This is a really tricky one. And, you know, historians have been debating about this very subject in huge amounts of detail um, for quite some time. I think I'll start with the question of the obsession or love, because I think that's a really, really interesting one. It helps us to get into, I think, the psychology of both Henry and Anne, actually. Now, there's a part of me that thinks, can you ever really love someone if you do what you did to your wife? You know, could you ever have really loved her? But then we do have to look at Henry's expressions of love. Um, he certainly conveyed that in a myriad of different ways. Of course, our understanding of love and his might be wildly different. And actually, I think we do have to look at the history of love. And I was very, very fortunate to work under the supervision for my doctoral thesis of Professor Claire Langhammer, who did the most remarkable study of the history of love. And actually, whilst, whilst love has been a desired component of marriage for a long time. It didn't really crystallise as central to marriage until the 1950s. This is, you know, a relatively modern phenomenon. So I would probably better characterise his infatuation as an obsession. I, I do think he was utterly obsessed by her. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think Henry had grown up around some very powerful and influential women. I think his first wife certainly fitted that bill. And his second was also a very formidable presence in his life. Anne isn't conventionally beautiful, but she is witty. She is intelligent. She is pious and she challenges him. And I think that sparked quite a, a frenzied obsession in him, actually, not least because she said no. And Henry was not used to people, certainly not women, saying no to him. So I think this was something that was very strong. It lasted quite a long time. I mean, we, we, we tend to focus on the marriage being very short, but the courtship was much longer. The question of love is, is difficult, a really difficult one for me, yeah. even more so for Anne because I just don't think we have the same kind of evidence base to proclaim a love affair as we do from Henry's perspective. We hear far more about love for Anne than we do about Anne's love for Henry. And that might be just because we don't have the evidence base for Anne that we do for Henry. So why, why does he bring her down? This is a massive, massive question. I think his obsession quickly turned to anger and even hatred. And I think there were a number of factors as to why that happened, not least her biology. The fact that she hadn't been able to 
secure the male succession in the, the way that he had hoped. But I think also the qualities that really attracted Anne to Henry began to grate on him when she didn't take the subservient consort role, perhaps as Catherine had. I think we can see in a number of occasions Anne in the driving seat, let alone trying to be in the driving seat. And I think that began to erode at something that was really quite important to Henry VIII, and that was his ego. So yes, that that's my take on it. Yes, it, it's a, it's such a difficult question, and I know that people are really interested in whether they there was love, whether they loved each other. But as I always say, it's difficult to assess the love between people that you know extremely well. Now, if you think about your own friends or family, you know, so it's such a tricky question, isn't it? Right. So the next question is very much rooted in the first question: Was Henry a narcissist and incapable of love? Really good question. It's a fantastic question. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I think if we had Henry here and if he was assessed by um, modern day practitioners, that you would find that Henry probably does have a personality disorder would be my conclusion. I don't know if it's narcissism, something. But of course, you know, that's difficult to prove. Was he incapable of love? Well, you know, you've just been speaking about this. I, I actually think Henry very much wanted to be in love. I feel like you know, that fantasy that he has in his head going is of him in love. He wants to be in love and he wants to be liked, doesn't he? And he wants to be, he wants to be loved, but is he capable of true love? Well, that's the very difficult question, isn't it? Because he's, his personality is such that it, it kind of, he's a bit like, you know, I love you, but I'm going to push you away at the same time. So it's, it's a tricky one. It's a really difficult one. He, he certainly can't admit to making mistakes. He can't, he doesn't seem to be able to apologize to anyone. So I, I just don't know how a relationship with Henry would work when he is always correct. So I don't know. Owen, do you want to add anything else to that one? I love your point there about not being able to apologize. It really strikes me that he only really shows regret for how he's treated people after they're dead. Yes. You know, we get, that, we get that with Wolsey and with Cromwell. It's never quite enough to save them, is it? Very interesting. I think the sort of missing component in a way is power. And let's not pretend that the monarchs that came before Henry or his own children didn't display some of the same, if not almost, you know, identical characteristics that Henry displays. Now, I think there is a uniqueness to Henry's need for love and affirmation. And you're completely right, this need to be in love. You know, we see that throughout his court, throughout this sort of chivalric court that he uh, holds. But I think... Before we start diagnosing people by modern standards, we do have to contemplate what power does to people. And very few of us have ever been able to exercise, even if we wanted to, which I would certainly not, the kind of power that these individuals were wielding. And I think, you know, th this is something that isn't inherent just in monarchs. You can see it in the, the 20th century dictators too. I think power, absolute power, does something awful to people yeah. and it generally ends with mass bloodshed. So rather than, I think, you know, it, it's very it, perhaps easier actually to, to say that a politician or a dictator who has elected themselves to power might possess these kinds of uh, qualities. This is a hereditary acquisition of the throne, albeit a relatively new one uh, in the, the case of the Tudors. So yes, I'm, I'm continually horrified by but fascinated with this question of what power does to people. And it's not pretty. It no, really isn't it's pretty. It's not pretty. I know, because we've probably, those of us that have sort of been immersed in this period for a long time, have obviously heard the statement, you know, the king's will was God's will, etc. Yeah. Henry prayed, God answered, that sort of thing. But it's difficult to imagine actually what would happen to you. How would it corrupt you if you actually believed that, that, you know, whatever yeah. you wished was actually what God was was willing for you and wanting. So it, it's, it is really, really interesting. And I think it's interesting that, yes, Henry had this side of him where he really wants to be liked and loved and he wants to be in love because he's got this fantasy going in his head. 
but his reality just never quite matched to the fantasy. And I think that's why we have the bloodshed, of course, that we have. It's, yeah, completely fascinating. I was just going to say, it's, it's hard for us to believe from, from our perspective that people really did believe that Henry spoke to God and was acting. Yes. But if, if you look at when Catherine Howard falls, we get this amazing information that she doesn't want, I think it's Culpepper, to confess because there, there's this idea that Henry will be able to tap into oh, yeah. this connection to God. So people really did, you know, appreciate that uh, the monarch had this sort of direct line. Yes. Um, and that was accountable only to God. It, it, it's a fascinating aspect that, you know, it's hard for me to appreciate, though, of course, we must as historians. So, yes, fascinating. So the next question is in regards to Anne's mother, so Elizabeth Boleyn. So are there any records of Anne's mother's views of the events going on in Anne's life, but mainly 1535, 1536? This questioner was curious to know whether anything more is known about Elizabeth Howard in this period. Was she involved in the court politics that, you know, ended up destroying her, her family? This is a really good question. And if I could find out more about one Boleyn, it will be Elizabeth, because we have so very little about her currently. Um, I'm sure there is more out there to find. Uh, it will take some searching to find it, because we know that at the beginning of their relationship, certainly when things are getting official, Elizabeth is at court and she is acting as Anne Chaperone. Now, we might infer from that 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 shows support but we might also recognize that that was simply her role as her mother we really don't know how elizabeth felt that's the honest truth i, I don't think we can uh, extrapolate anything really from those actions we certainly know that anne is very worried for her mother when she is uh, imprisoned in the tower of london she speaks about her uh, being in ill health and her fear that it will kill her so I suppose we can extrapolate from that that they still have a good relationship. Uh, I think that is probably the case. But I don't think we know what Elizabeth's views were on her queenship, her downfall, though we can deduce that she certainly most likely would have been heartbroken. I, I, think, I think we can more firmly say that Anne's downfall utterly changed her father. If you look at the correspondence before Anne's fall that Thomas is sending to court and after, he is a completely changed man. I think he's a he's a completely broken man. And neither parents live much longer after their, their children's downfall. We can see a softening, shall we say, between Thomas and Mary, who of course had rather dramatically fallen out with her family over the Stafford marriage. But yes, sadly, with Elizabeth Boleyn, I, I really don't think we can go any further than that. Although I would love to speculate. I don't know if you have any no, feelings. No, exactly the same. I only found a few mentions of her in the in that whole period that I looked at very closely. So late 1534, 1535 and 1536, there's only really fleeting sort of, you know, glimpses of her, which is sad because I would also love to know more about Elizabeth and her relationship with Anne. As you said, I think the admission that Anne makes in the tower where she says, oh, her mother's going to sort of die because of what's happened, you know, heartbreak suggests that they were very close, but, you know, it's hard. We can't read too much into it, I suppose. It's a tantalising little connection there, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah. But yeah, Elizabeth's life is really quite opaque. Right, so the next question is, do you think there's a possibility that Henry VIII feared an unlikely alliance between Anne and indeed the whole Boleyn family and his daughter Mary? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I don't think we have any evidence to suggest that he feared an alliance between Mary and Anne. I think their relationship was quite clear to everyone that was around at the time that I don't think an alliance was going to happen there. But what he certainly did fear, and we have evidence for, is that Mary was going to be kind of whisked away and perhaps set up in opposition to Henry somewhere on the continent with the support of her her cousin, the Emperor Charles V. That is, you know, that's there's definitely evidence for that particular fear. And Henry was very concerned with that. And to be honest, Owen, it was not an unfounded fear because there were there I... were plans being discussed between Chapuis, between the Emperor, between Catherine of Aragon, and even plans at one point about how Mary could actually be removed from the palace in London and then, you know, taken away by boat down the river. 
So there were actual plans. And if we if we believe uh, the Imperial Ambassador used to Shapui, Mary thought of nothing else day and night. That's all she wanted yeah. to do, escape from court and away from her troubles. So I can't say that there's any evidence that he feared an alliance between Anne and the Berlins. However, definitely feared that Mary was going to be uh, taken away. Have you got anything else to add there, Owen, about the other alliance? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it would be probably the most unlikely alliance at court. But I can I can appreciate why the question was asked, because although Anne really is not a shining stepmother by any sense of the imagination and does some pretty awful things to Mary and Catherine, she does make... I suppose, really quite genuine efforts as well to make a sort of rapprochement between both her and Mary and Mary and the King. And I completely appreciate and recognise why that was entirely impossible for Mary. And, you know, I, I wouldn't expect her to, to act in any other way. So I, I, I can guess why that question was asked in that Anne is actively trying to smooth things over with Mary she she needs to it's you know the the tensions between her her husband and her stepdaughter are adding to her vulnerability Absolutely. so you know she she has to make those advances and of course when she is snubbed it makes relations that much worse between mary and anne um but i think it's highly unlikely that they ever would have formed any kind of alliance um certainly um george and thomas had no particular liking for <laughs> lady mary or princess mary either so yes i think it was I, I think you're completely right i think the damage was um or the risk rather was far more to do with mary escaping and and setting up a rival uh, court and claim uh, this is i think continuing from that question mm. and it says perhaps Henry feared a potential coup of his power by the Boleyns and any potential allies um, of theirs, most especially after Catherine's death. So do you think that he did have a fear that perhaps they'd team up with someone else at court? I mean, you can look at what Anne is charged with, and that is conspiring his death. Yes. And you can certainly extrapolate from that, that that would be founded upon a recognition of a possibility that you know there might have been a, a, a power grab at play yeah. the, the problem i have is that i just think all of the charges were conveniently fabricated and I, I don't know that they were necessarily rooted in a firm or genuine fear that that henry or any of his courtiers actually held but it's an interesting prospect all of Anne's security comes from Henry. So, you know, and her, her daughter is still an infant. I, I cannot imagine why the Boleyns at this point would, e even if they had the wherewithal to do so, or the inclination, it, it's probably the worst time that they possibly could act against the king and try to overthrow him. Um, I, I, I certainly don't see the outcome of that as Anne as some kind of protector for Elizabeth. I, I think they would know that the risk was that there would be a coup in the favour of Princess Mary. So did Henry fear that? I think he would have recognised that it was highly unlikely that any kind of Belinku would be successful. Why else would he be so adamant that Mary recognise her illegitimacy? He he wanted those words to come out of her mouth. And the summer of 1536 was the summer from hell for her. Yes. And it wasn't because of Anne Boleyn. So, yes, I think I think highly unlikely. OK, so next question. Did Henry's jousting accident change his personality? Oh, goodness, this is a huge question. People have done entire studies on this. Like Professor Susanna Lipscomb's 1536 book is a good one to look at if you're really interested in, in this question. Did Henry's jousting accident? So the jousting accident we're talking about happened in January. Henry was practicing for an upcoming uh, joust, was training, basically doing a training exercise he'd done probably a million times before, was with the men probably of his privy chamber, all watching, and the king had quite an embarrassing fall from the horse. The fact that it wasn't an actual jousting competition at that point, Anne Boleyn wasn't there witnessing her husband jousting, which is why we we you know know that it wasn't an actual joust. There's no record of a joust at Greenwich at that time, so he is training. 
The fact that his training probably saved his life because it's unlikely that the horse would have been armoured. The king was probably armoured, so he falls off his horse. The horse falls on top of him. We have kind of a couple of conflicting accounts. One account suggests the king was unconscious for like two hours. Another account suggests he was absolutely fine and there was no injury. And really, if you look a little bit sort of at the events that happen after this, he appears to be completely fine in terms of physical, you know, no physical injuries. He's up and about. Did it change his personality? I actually don't think it changed his personality, Owen. I think the king was born with that personality. And I think if we're talking about his sort of violent nature or something like that, I think he, he showed us many times before that accident that he was capable of great brutality when he wanted to to show that side. He also had a very charismatic, quite a lovely side to him as well. But I think if we're talking about the brutality, he was absolutely capable of that. If we're talking about him being suspicious, I think he was always kind of suspicious. But what I do think that accident did, I do think that that is a, a really important point in this story, but not because it changed his personality. I think because it had such a huge impact on his ego, that accident in front of the men that, hey, would end up on the scaffold in in a few months. I don't think that's a coincidence. Men that were older than him, Sir Henry Norris was older than the king, continued jousting. Henry was unable to joust after this. And I think that's, we need to kind of emphasize that. His great love, you know, it was a chance to show his his honor and his his manhood, his manliness in a public arena, no longer able to to do that. And so I think there was a real injury to his ego at that point. And because it was witnessed by other people, I think that made it worse. So not really a change in the personality, but certainly a change in the way the king behaved towards all these people now. He does become, I think, increasingly suspicious of the the virile men surrounding Anne at this point. And I think he is watching his wife a little bit closer after this and seeing how she's interacting with the other men at court but I think it has more to do with ego than anything else yeah I completely agree I mean I I think it's a really really interesting question this idea of shifting personality and the potential for brain damage I think it's well argued but my my issue with it is that the only source that suggests that he was unconscious for a couple of hours is at best third third hand it is absolutely uh, not an eyewitness account um and the fact that those who were present don't make anything of it places a question mark over it um for me but i do i think you're completely right i think his behaviors before and after are aligned um i don't think there is i mean 1535 was horrific um absolutely I mean, it seriously was. And uh, I think you're completely right. I think it emasculated him in a very particular way. And and also, I think we have to recognise that he did sustain a injury that would plague him for the rest of his life. But it wasn't, I don't think, a brain one. It was the wound on his leg that would ulcerate, that would further emasculate him. I mean, he would have to take to his chamber um, for large periods of time while while this bubbled up and oozed it strips him of the very visual manliness and kingliness that he had very much tried to engender, this all-powerful and very, very much tied to the chivalric tradition. And he just was not able to fulfil that anymore. So yes, I do think it changed him, but not because of a brain injury. I think I think you're completely right. Yes, and I, th- I think it was also a reminder that he's not immortal, that he's going yeah. to at some point die, and he still has no male heir, which is, of course, completely obsessed with and was, though, pregnant at that particular time. But unfortunately, that that pregnancy did end in a tragic miscarriage just days after. Um, yeah. So it's, it is, it's a very, it's pivotal to this story, but I don't think it has to do with a change in personality, or they may have suffered some, you know, possibly some sort of concussion, However, I think it's more the the injury to the ego that is what has a very serious effect on events, I think, from now on. So there's a question about Anne's ladies. So which ladies were at court when Anne was arrested? Do we have a record of that? I don't actually think we do know exactly who was at court um, and certainly who was with Anne at the time of her arrest. There's a lot of, as you well know, misinformation about this particular arrest, which you beautifully revealed in your wonderful study of Anne's last final year. So there is this tradition that she was watching tennis, which doesn't really have any foundation 
so yes we we sadly don't have that level of detail what do you what do you have anything to add to that no i suppose the only thing we can do is kind of look at the ladies that are in Anne's privy chambers and we can perhaps suggest that they would have been there but this is not conclusive by any means so we have people like Madge or Mary, depending, Margaret or Mary, there's a bit of a debate about whether they're <laughs> two people, one person. Um, Madge or Mary Shelton was part of Anne's privy chamber. Marjorie Horseman is very much involved in these final months. Uh, she appears to be working in Anne's wardrobe, or she's definitely a contact anyway there. We have Margaret Douglas, which appears to be toward, right towards the end. She actually gets a gown or material, I can't remember exactly, given to her. So she seems to be in the picture a tradition says Jane Seymour's in her household, but really we don't see much of her at the end. Elizabeth Holland. So Anne's got some Boleyn relatives in there, but we don't. You're absolutely right. There is no record to say these women were with the Queen when she was actually arrested. And as you've um, already highlighted, there's quite a lot of sort of confusion about what Anne was doing when she was arrested. Yeah, I wish we had more conclusive evidence about who was with her. It's, I, I think, a reflection, actually, of the fact that this was a purposefully poorly documented period. Um, we only really have the remnants of what they wanted to keep. It's it's not a very detailed period, unfortunately, but I think purposefully so. Now, I've got another question. Is there anything more we can learn from what Alexander Alice witnessed between Anne and Henry? Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Let me have a think. Okay, so the so this question is referring to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Owen, he's a Scottish theologian in Elizabeth's yes. reign that I think is writing to Elizabeth and he's he's talking about an event that he witnessed. He was apparently at court on the 30th of April, 1536, and he witnessed quite a heated argument between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Anne was in fact carrying Elizabeth. That's why he's telling Elizabeth this story later on. And he's saying that she was, you know, they were having a bit of an argument. He couldn't really hear what exactly what was going on, but he assumed that some very difficult question was being kind of discussed between them. So that's the that's what this is about. So is there anything more we can learn? Well, I think that weekend, there was a lot going on that weekend, the 29th and 30th of April. So I think we can definitely learn that by the 30th of April, so Anne's arrested on the 2nd of May, by the 30th of April, something has come to light, which has clearly upset Henry. I suggest that it is an incident that occurred with Sir Henry Norris, which was quite public. And I think that Anne herself then goes to discuss this in the tower. She mentions it in the tower. But the fact that Henry Norris is arrested before that, to me, suggests the king already knew about it. So, yeah. you know, he knew about it on, the, on that particular weekend. And so I think the argument must have been something to do with that discussion that Anne had had with Sir Henry Norris, where she said, to him in a moment of complete madness you look for dead men's shoes for if aught came to the king but good you would look to have me and then very quickly said you know go and say that I'm a good woman to my um almond or whatnot so I think that that story was obviously carried to the king carried to Cromwell perhaps he confronted her about it it's difficult to know exactly what what happened but I think something happened and the best piece of evidence to suggest that something really did come up that Henry found out is that that night so the 30th of April at 11 p.m., we've got this recorded exactly even the time, the king cancels Anne and his upcoming trip to Dover. So something yep. definitely has happened that has caused Henry to cancel their trip. He then says he's going to go the following week on his own. So he's already getting rid of Anne from that picture. The following day is, of course, the May Day joust where he makes his sudden his sudden departure. But I think certainly the day before he already knew that something was going on. And the fact, I also think that Mark Smeaton was arrested on that same day as well. So perhaps it was about that, but I think definitely one or the other. So I, I think, yeah, I think we can learn that there was definitely information already out there, although I don't think they had the full case against her. I think yes. Anne unfortunately incriminated herself while she was in the tower and obviously in a state of great stress. Um, and she was encouraged to talk by the women that were with her. So so yes, it's yeah, it's a really tragic story, and I wonder how Elizabeth felt about it when she when she heard it. It must have been quite heartbreaking, actually, and it's very much in line with what we know that Elizabeth was either being given or was soliciting information about not just her mother but the the events that took place. So it very much aligns with that, and it also reminds me that 
Matthew Parker was entrusted with Elizabeth's spiritual well-being by Anne around this time, if not a little bit earlier, I think. So I think Anne knows that the winds have changed. I don't think she has any idea why or what the consequences of that change will be. But I think she, I mean, she's a brilliant politician. She She knows when things are up. I think it's very much fitting into her psychology at this time. And it might also explain why she is being slightly more rash than she ought to have been. I mean, we have this admonishment of Smeaton at this, uh, around this time as well for looking at her. She's obviously in the only comparable state that I can think of is during that sort of crisis here of 1535, where she almost sort of snaps um, at several times. And I think this is this behaviour is very much evidenced in her final days at court as well. She is being slightly more careless than um, is good for her. And I don't think there's anything in her actions. I don't think they mean anything about what they will be twisted into. But there is a there is a change in the air and Anne is acutely aware of it, I think. It's so true. And I think over and over we see that stress just enhances her her rashness, as you said, her irritability. She just kind of lashes out at people. But then when the sanity kind of returns and I think we can all, you know, we've all had that where you're stressed out in a moment, you say things that you don't mean. And then when you're a little bit calmer, you realize, oh, okay, look what I've done. You know, and in her situation, this was life and death. Like it was, although I don't, I don't think at this point she could have, as you've said, expected the end that actually came in the end. However, I think she knew her husband well enough to know that he could be completely changeable and fickle and whatnot. So as you say, I think her radar was kind of hypersensitive at this point, um, which is what we see. Yes. So let me see here. So. Oh, and do you think the letter that was apparently written by Anne to Henry from the tower is genuine? And if yes, do you think Henry ever saw that particular letter? Uh, I'm going to start with the second question first. (laughs) I don't think he ever saw the letter. And I'm sad to say, I don't quite believe that Anne wrote it. Certainly, I don't think she wrote the letter that has been transcribed. Let's put it like that. Now, my lovely friend Sandra Vasoli has written the most glorious book and she puts up the best argument going for this being a genuine letter. For me, I don't recognise Anne's tone. I don't recognise her sentence structure. Now, I must caution this. We don't have a huge amount of letters that survive (laughs) from Anne. I think there. I think we counted that there was nine or so. There's not a huge amount to go by. Yes. I mean, if this were Cromwell, I think we could much better deduce his tone, or even Thomas Boleyn, because there's much more correspondence from from Thomas that survives. If they are Anne's words, I don't think she wrote them. I think they were conveyed, and we do have precedents for this. Now we have no information that suggests Anne is given pen and paper or parchment and in fact I think it was counterintuitive to do so because they wanted her to talk uh, and talk she does and in doing so she is almost feeding her own fate. Very innocently she is trying to glean from past memories and actions why it is that she is being held at her husband's pleasure in the tower. Now Yes. So if it is a letter from Anne Boleyn, they are her words, but as conveyed by the message bearer. I think that's far more likely. So there are elements of it that are so Anne and there are elements that just aren't. And I suppose those are the elements that I take issue with. And I just can't help but think that it's the perfect letter to fill in a massive gap. It reminds me of the tower scene of which that letter is very much based on. uh, That scene is very much based on that letter. It's this final act of defiance and pointing out to Henry that she knows about Jane Seymour. And it doesn't really tally for me with all of her other actions, which are very much to omit that she is guilty, you know, omit any sense of admitting guilt but also being quite cautious, I think, for her family's sake and, and Elizabeth's sake. I don't know that that fits into that pattern that we can see. 
I might be wrong. I just don't, I don't think the sentence structure exists in the way that Anne wrote. She had quite an idiosyncratic way of writing that is quite noticeable. And you can, you can kind of hear her voice when you read it aloud, if that makes sense. She has a certain way of phrasing things. So yes, the only way that I think it could be is if it was roughly what she said. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. That I don't, what, sense, what are your yeah. thoughts? I don't think yeah, we've ever really spoken about it. Yeah, it's, as well I'm sort of it's a difficult one it's a difficult one because I think she definitely would have wanted to write to the king so I think that's that sort of fits with it and I, and she does in fact request to write to Thomas Cromwell doesn't she and Kingston yeah. in fact says oh just tell it to me madam and I will convey it so that also makes sense that she would have just dictated and somebody would have yeah. you know recorded whether as you say they're word for word what Anne said I don't know. I agree with you. Some parts just don't sound like Anne, but then there are other bits that you can imagine her saying to him. And the interesting thing is as well, that there's a postscript on the back of one of the letters. And that sort of has some interesting information that suggests that somebody went to kind of pressure her to admit her guilt. So the main letter's taken, then on the back, someone's returned a messenger, I don't know who, to kind of pressure her into admitting her guilt on that she won't admit anything else which kind of sounds like and as well so i suppose what i would what i would say to anyone listening or viewing is to 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 have a look at the work that sandra vasoli has done because it is it's it's wonderful and it's really engaging and i know she's put hours and hours of research into this and then perhaps then you can make up your own mind because it's one of those that we're just not going to have a a conclusive answer unfortunately i know it's a bit of a letdown not to have a yes or no but you know i would encourage everyone to look at the evidence and and just see what you think definitely i think the only thing that i would add is the use of berlin yes. even if it's spelled b-u-l-l-e-n and it's not just that it's signed berlin it's mentioned in the body of the text it is yes. I, I i just i don't think Anne would ever have referred to herself so. as such either she would have called herself Anne the queen or Anne pembroke or Anne rochford i mean she's gone through she's gone through a number of different titles by has, this yes. thing. so that i find puzzling and if someone else did write it summarizing what she said they would have deliberately lowered her status in in some way because that's certainly what it would have conveyed maybe they thought they they were showing humility you know deference by lowering her, right, her status yes. somehow yeah. but then I'm, I'm not sure that is in accord with the rest of the content of the letter <laughs> you know why include the you know but i quite agree with you Natalie. i think everyone should read sandra Vasoli's book it's just been republished actually it has and... with some new it's some new things that sandy's added yeah, to yeah, it. yeah. So i i do encourage everyone to do that definitely so it's, it's a really really beautiful study and an amazing piece of scholarship so um i heartily recommend it to anyone uh, we actually have the tower letter on display not the original because it doesn't survive, <laughs> but a transcript of it at Heva because every time we take it off display, people request that we put it up. So, um, <laughs> and therefore we get to have this debate on a regular basis at Heva, which is fantastic. Um, it's really nice, really nice. So I've got uh, the next question. Do we know how Anne reacted to the news of her brother, George, being executed? No, we don't know for certain how she reacted, unfortunately. So we have our main sort of source of information for this period of time when Anne is, is imprisoned is William Kingston's letters. He's reporting. You can imagine he's probably reporting multiple times a day, daily to Thomas Cromwell. Unfortunately, not all of these survive so, and the letters that do survive have been damaged, have been quite heavily damaged. Some were seen prior to them being damaged. So we, we can sort of piece together some information, but there are definitely gaps. There's no doubt about it. There are gaps. So whether he recorded her response and it hasn't survived, I don't know. However, I think just from being immersed in this story for so long and in this period, I would suggest that Anne was completely heartbroken I would suggest that that is when she lost hope. So we have her towards the end of her imprisonment still hoping that she's, and I think there's a question about this a little bit later, so we'll come to it, but she's still in hope of life. And they're her words as recorded by, by Kingston. I think she still hoped that the king would perhaps, you know, change his mind, that maybe it was a test and then he would set them free. But I think after the execution of George and the other men, she just, I think that's when she realised 
that her end was was certainly coming. I think she would have been absolutely heartbroken because if something came through strongly in all this research, it's that they had the most beautiful relationship. You know, they were an incredibly close brother and sister. And I think this is why they were so vulnerable to those charges of incest. Unfortunately, this was twisted. Their lovely friendship and, and they were just like two peas in a pod, as we say, both brilliant, both charismatic, so intelligent, enjoyed the same sorts of things. You know, we have beautiful accounts of George literally riding day and night to get to his sister to give her some information that was not very pleasant. So he didn't want to pass it on to any other messenger. He wanted to be the one to de deliver this information to Anne. He would visit her before visiting the king. So there's there's so much, so much evidence of their closeness and of how he admired her, you know, translating books for her and writing the most lovely dedications that I think any sister would love to have from her brother. So given all of that, I think she would have been absolutely devastated, you know, and, and I do think that that's when that little spark of hope just completely went out at that point. They were just, they were both formidable and, and it is that that in the end made them dangerous to Henry and his plan. So there was no way that you could arrest Anne, that you could imprison her and leave George free. That's the the sort of bottom line, and, and Henry would have known that. That is why I think George is implicated. And of course, they're trying to paint Anne as this kind of just, you know, a woman that has no boundaries, that will do absolutely anything sexually voracious, will just have any man. And of course, they include her brother there because it's just so shocking to people. However, um, no, I think their relationship was quite beautiful. And I think that was a would have been a very difficult moment for Anne hearing that that particular news. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's at that point that we get Anne, who had been flitting between hope and despair, being resolved to resolved. die. Yes, exactly. And, and almost, I mean, we get this comment from Kingston that she almost takes pleasure in death. And actually, because she is so pious, because she has such a, a devout faith, from, from her perspective, she would... She knows her, her brother's innocent. She mm. knows she's innocent. She has every conviction that she will be reunited with Reunite. him. Exactly. Um, I think in a way, her brother was sort of the love of her life. They were, they could have almost been twins in a way. Yeah. Do you know that kind of like inseparability yeah. that twins have um, or can have? They are each other's sort of spirit in a way they they are conjoined and they expand each other's horizons and i also think that george almost sacrifices his career because his father had a much more sort of varied and yeah. uh, career than george and and george's is really crystallized around Anne's rise and facilitating that rise he sort of does everything for her and I think you you hit the nail on the head there George George had to go because he would have fought for Anne yeah, in I fact I so. I think he was probably en route to court on his way to do yeah. just that when he's arrested he, so he had to go but those charges would have been crushing I think that helps in a way to explain why they fought quite as valiantly as they did in that courtroom and why people were so convinced that they would be acquitted. You know, this wasn't brushing off ridiculous accusations. They were biting against the most personal insults as well. So, yes, I, I think his death, I think the moment that axe fell was the moment she wanted to die. So, yeah horrible yeah. to talk about but it is it, it's, it's really heartbreaking and and i think there's a suggestion by eustace shapui that and was moved so that she could see his execution he's yes. the only source of information for this and given that Anne was staying in the queen's apartments it would have taken a lot to move her somewhere where she could actually you know we've had this discussion before owen where yeah. she could have seen it we can't say for certain that she didn't However, there's only that one source of information that says that she did to kind of increase her grief or her pain, which sounds just tremendously awful. But whether she saw it or not, I think it would have been just crushing. And as you say, I think we see a change in her after that, definitely. And it, then from then on, it is just a manner of prayer and preparation for, for the end, really. And she believes she's going to die the next day. Yes, she does. Um, so I think she actually gets herself twice to the point where she's sort of ready to die. Of course, the execution is delayed, which must have been very, very difficult because I think she had become composed and then was almost starting to crack again. It's then we get these 
outbursts of really dark humour again. And I think it completely changed all of her perspective of hope. I think that completely died. So, yeah, hugely, um, hugely traumatic all round really such a pleasant <laughs> chat isn't it <laughs> goodness me we're oh, gonna dear, need I don't know, to watch a comedy after this Owen or something so there's yeah. a question here about whether Anne saw any of her family while she was in the tower so we know George is in the tower with her but does she see anyone yeah so we we do know that she is with Elizabeth Boleyn her um, uncle James who is Thomas's brother's wife she is one of the ladies who is waiting upon her uh, in the tower. So, yes, she does see relatives. She certainly sees her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, who presides over the trial. She was arrested by him too. Now, this is his role. This is his responsibility. And although we hear that he has tears streaming down his eyes when he announces the death sentence um, against her, he also is let's be frank a bit of a prick when he arrests <laughs> her. Sure um, he, he tuts three times i mean this is gareth russell once said this is the act of a complete bully you know you don't there's something you just don't do is it Absolutely. um when you're when you're arresting anyone let alone your niece for goodness sake i mean i i have very little good to say about this man he is rather a repugnant individual. And I do often have to wonder, were those tears about the lack of influence that he now had? Not that Anne and him ever got along, but yes. So so Anne does see family members. She mentions her mother. She mentions her brother. She mentions her father. This isn't the kind of situation where family can pop in and say hello. In fact, she's purposefully kept away from her family. Uh, she's kept in a very specific location for a very specific reason. This isn't, you know, you don't you don't get visiting hours or anything like that oh. in the Tudor era. And and Anne is being held. I think the location is significant because these are rooms that were essentially rebuilt and refurbished for her coronation. They would have been sumptuous. She would have been very comfortable, but she couldn't go anywhere. And this is a this is a woman who's been utterly mobile for most of her life you know the, the rhythm of court life is pretty much to stay at a venue a palace for a few weeks and then because of the lack of facilities shall we say drainage things like that uh, you move on to the next palace so this this must have been very strange for her it's a very hostile environment, I think, that she's in. This beautiful celebratory space that was purposefully refurbished for her, for the, the most triumphant day of her life, really, is now her prison. And she is surrounded by not unfamiliar women, but certainly not the women that she would choose to be around her. And she's having to negotiate this incredibly psychologically challenging time in their presence she doesn't know who to trust and yet she has no choice but to try and you know she has no idea why she's there and and the truth of the matter is although henry and cromwell knew they wanted her gone they didn't quite have all of the charges yet so she is adding to the charge sheet with all of these uh, admissions in a way i mean we we see a, almost a growing relationship with william kingston i would say over this period but of course, he's reporting back everything that she says to Cromwell. Um, I'm sure the ladies that she is with has been have been charged to do exactly the same. So she's she's in a trap. It's awful. She, she's stuck is, in a way. It is really awful. And I think I think, again, this is Henry wanting to look generous, kind, housing her in the Queen's apartments. But in a way, I think it's it's actually incredibly cruel. I think it's, it's the, the psychological, the psychological effect it must have had. As you say, you know, being in a place that where she was celebrating just three years earlier, where she was pregnant, you know, the hope yeah. of having the Tudor heir there. And then suddenly now she's under house arrest. And as you've already said, the women, although she knows them, they're not women of her privy chamber. They're not the women she wanted to be there. They're constantly with her. There's two sleep, two women sleep in her bedchamber with her. And then yeah. two more outside of just the door. So, you know, there's no privacy. She she has no moment alone. They're always, they're always listening. And I think perhaps putting her in those surroundings maybe was to encourage her to feel a little bit more comfortable and to start talking, which is what she does. It must have been just such a traumatic 
an awful experience for her. And I think it was that shared trauma that then softened each other's opinions about, you know, and that's what I suggest that I think the fact that these women witnessed everything that Anne went through. Yes, she had moments of, of stress and whatnot, but with a lot of dignity, I think that did change their opinion of her in the end. Now, Natalie, is there any truth to the story that Anne chose execution over being sent to a convent in Antwerp? So that's interesting. I'd had I'd never actually heard of the convent in Antwerp. I, I think perhaps where this might come from, well, actually, it might actually come from um, we've seen in some fictional accounts where perhaps Henry offers her an opportunity to to leave. But I think it may be grounded in a little bit of truth. And that's that on the 16th of May, while she's in the tower, the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer comes to visit her. And we think he has come to visit. The visit's recorded, but we don't know what he actually said to her. However, it appears that he may have perhaps offered her her life if she agreed to annul the marriage. It's, it's sort of unclear as to whether... Cranmer would have done this on his own back, knowing that Henry was not going to go through with this, or whether Henry, in fact, tricked Cranmer as well and said, no, no, this is what's going to happen. It's all a bit confusing. However, what we do know for certain is that that day at dinner, after Cranmer had visited her, is when Anne is talking with Kingston and she says that she she has hope that she's going to go to a nunnery and that she's in hope of life. So this is the 16th of May. So the, the men had not been executed yet. So there was talk, it appears, of a nunnery, of her being, you know, going away to a nunnery. Whether that one nunnery was in Antwerp, I don't know. I'm not sure. But there definitely is a record of her saying that she she thinks she's going to go to a nunnery. And it seems that that could only have come from Cranmer and his visit. So he's off, offered her something in return for perhaps her agreeing to an annulment or, or something like that. But yeah, the question of whether Cranmer knew that that was not going to happen is a tricky one because, of course, we want, you know, he's her supporter. She um, supported him through the rise of his career. So it's difficult to know whether he knew Henry's motives or not, or whether he was just as innocent as Anne in this particular situation. But she was at that point in hope of life. Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a perfect answer, really. I think there's no coincidence that it is on that day yeah. that Cranmer has visited her, that she mentions this possible alternative. Yeah. And as you say, the executions haven't started yet. No. So I think this is the last flickering flame of hope. And perhaps Cranmer did, you know, blow on those flames a little bit to yeah. get her to annul the marriage to save herself. Which is I mean, annulled it's, the next it's... day, isn't it, Owen? The next day? Is it on the 17th? It is. So we know that mechanism is already in, in full swing. This is sort of the signing on the line isn't it so although we can't prove it it would be a logical conclusion that there was some kind of negotiation that took place and that her life was mentioned and that can only have come from henry and it's entirely in keeping i think with his kind of modus operandi and how awful you know the next day to realize that everything is still in place that your brother's gonna die whether or not Anne witnessed that execution, I think if she did witness it, it would have been because she wanted to. But I still think it's fairly unlikely. Uh, it's only Chapuis that we get that information from. But yes, I I think this is the the, the death of that hope. She would she certainly would have been able to hear what was happening, even oh, from the the palace that she was occupying, which she certainly wouldn't have been able to see anything from. That must have been horrific. Wherever she was in that tower, that she would have been able to hear the crowds. Awful. Thank you, everyone. We're going to leave this conversation here for today. Thank you so much for joining us and do come back tomorrow for part two of Anne Boleyn's Downfall, Your Questions Answered. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions, or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm -hmm.